the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition, the first official day of spring on the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Christine Hoover. She's the author of Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. We're also going to talk with Angie Taylor. She's the head of school at Valor Christian School International. And this is our ongoing effort to draw your attention at some of the finest Christian schools in the nation right here in our community. And to remind you that there are opportunities to save big on tuition, up to 40% in some cases. You can go to the website listenersavings.com for more information. We have discounts for uh, first through eighth grade at West Hills Christian School. Uh, We have discounts at Valor Christian School for their high school, uh, Christian School International. North Clackamas Christian School is offering uh, tuition discounts at their elementary school and uh, also their junior high uh, school as well. So check that out. Again, you can enjoy some significant savings on those tuitions. Well, a gunman who opened fire at Great Mills High School earlier today, that's in Maryland, was killed after engaging an armed school resource officer. The shooter, Austin Wyatt Rollins, was 17. Uh, He was the only fatality. Police said Rollins used a handgun to shoot a 16-year-old female student who was in the ICU with life-threatening uh, critical injuries. The 14-year-old mayor student was also shot and is in stable condition. St. Mary's County Sheriff Tim Cameron said there were indications that Rollins and the female victim had a prior relationship. It's not clear what that relationship was, which police are investigating as a possible motive for the incident. She was apparently the number one target. The school resource officer, Deputy um, Blaine Gaskell, was uh, alerted of the shooting, immediately responded and engaged the shooter. Gaskell, who was also a SWAT team member, was not injured in that shooting. Our school resource officer was alerted to the event. He pursued the shooter, engaged the shooter, fired around at the shooter, Cameron said. The shooter fired around as well. In the hours and days to come, we'll be able to determine if our school resource officer round struck uh, the shooter, which it appears to have done. But again, you need to do a full investigation to confirm that. Cameron said police were investigating if the shots fired killed Rollins or if he attempted to commit suicide. Police are also investigating if the 14-year-old male student was shot by Rollins or Gaskell, the officer, while the two exchanged gunfire. Well, the governor of Maryland, uh, Governor Larry Hogan, called the shooting tragic and accused the Democrat-led legislature of failing to take action on one of the aggressive school safety plans in the the country. Uh, we are closely monitoring the situation at Great Mills High School in a uh, um, rather uh, at MDSP uh, is in uh, touch with local law enforcement. I assume that refers to the governor and ready to provide support. Our prayers are with the students, school personnel and first responders. The governor, Larry Hogan, wrote, we need more than prayers. We um, we got to take action. He went on to say we got um, one of the most aggressive school safety plans in America that we introduced a few years ago. 
We've got to take action. We're going to try to get something done in Annapolis. We'll see what happens uh, there in response. But again, the shooter down in that um, that incident. Uh, the Patriot Post had a rather interesting response pointing out that an officer with a gun saved student lives today, uh, pointing out that a student opened fire this morning at Great Mills uh, High School in St. Mary's County, Maryland. Uh, fortunately, before he did more than wound two fellow students, including the female he was specifically targeting, the school resources officer fired back, stopped the threat, killed the assailant. Obviously, having an armed officer on campus saved lives today, but only because he was willing to respond. Now, again, they're investigating to confirm that he, in fact, took out the uh, shooter rather than uh, also wounding a student. Uh, they went on to point out ahead of this weekend's March for Our Lives, it's worth noting that the demands of these students include two policies they oppose. One of them is this, any legislation that would aim to fortify our schools with more guns. Many students are alive today because the Maryland school was fortified with a gun. Food for thought for any teens honest about saving lives instead. Again, a part of the larger equation. Well, another lead story, search uh, for the search rather for the alleged Texas serial bomber, as they now believe is the case, is heating up. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has vowed authorities will make an arrest in the alleged serial bombing that have rocked the Austin area for the last three weeks and now has broadened. Uh, we are going to find this bomber and we are going to find this bomber soon, he said on the story with Martha McCallum. His comments came as a manhunt for a possible serial bomber and the attacks have intensified for explosive package uh, attacks have rattled Austin in the last three weeks. The most recent was on Sunday when an explosion um, of a suburban neighborhood known as Travis County in southwest Austin injured two people. Authorities said Sunday explosive device, that explosive device was triggered after a bicyclist crossed a tripwire the size of a fishing line. Uh, he went on to say that there are uh, so many resources spread throughout Austin and the rest of Texas, including hundreds of federal agents. And of course, there was a device that exploded uh, today not in Austin, but at a Texas FedEx facility. It detonated before reaching its intended target and is likely linked to the string of bombings uh, that have uh, rocked the state's capital this month. Officials were also investigating another suspicious package at a facility in Austin. Uh, however, authorities didn't immediately reveal if that was uh, uncovered as a nefarious device and law enforcement officers are briefing um, the uh, at the site. They didn't answer questions about its um, likely origins. Uh, in other news, the White House and congressional Democrats are trading uh, proposals over the weekend as they restarted negotiations on how to fix the Obama-era DACA program, protecting thousands of immigrants brought to the United States illegally as children from deportation. A source familiar with talks uh, said discussions broke down after Democrats rejected a bid by the president, by the administration, to extend protections for those enrolled in the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program until the fall of 2020. In exchange, the White House would receive $25 billion in funding for the president's long-sought-after wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. The Democrats countered with an offer to provide funding for the wall in exchange for a pathway to citizenship for all 1.8 million DACA-eligible immigrants, as opposed to the estimated 800,000 who are enrolled in the program. At that point, the source said that uh, talks broke down. The Democrats do not want to help DACA. Would be easy to make a deal, Trump tweeted uh, Monday night. The immigration talks were a part of a larger negotiation on a $1.3 trillion catch-all spending bill. And yes, the clock is ticking on that. It would have to pass Congress by midnight Friday uh, to avoid another government shutdown. 
And a deadly crash involving a self-driving Uber SUV in Arizona could leave the the ride-sharing company vulnerable to criminal charges under new rules enacted earlier this month by the state's governor. Police in Tempe said that the Uber-operated Volvo SUV was engaged in autonomous mode with a human backup operator behind the wheel when it struck and killed 49-year-old Elaine Hertzberg. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey used light regulations to entice Uber to the state after the company experienced a shaky rollout of test cars in neighboring California, and hundreds of vehicles with automated driving systems have been on the state's roads. However, on the first of this month, the governor signed an executive order creating a detailed set of rules and licensing system for the vehicles. Under the new rules, a spokesman for the governor told the Phoenix News Times, a company that operates a self-driving vehicle would be held responsible if it negligently killed someone during testing. According to the paper, the company could even be held criminally liable in the same manner a person would. And finally, severe weather ravaged the southeast on Monday night, leaving behind widespread damage, thousands without power, and at least one reported death. The line of storms blew through Alabama first, spawned at least one confirmed tornado that slammed Jacksonville State University and the area around it. Alabama State Troopers said the damage in Jacksonville left the city looking like a war zone as strong winds downed trees, damaged buildings, including Jacksonville State Arena. The National Weather Service confirmed a damaging and possibly large tornado near Jacksonville and Calhoun counties was moving um, uh, eastern in cities in northern Alabama, reported power outages. Forecasters warned that the storms could threaten more than 29 million people there. Today, of course, being the first day of spring. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Christine Hoover, searching for spring. Well, it's here, but the subtitle, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Christine Hoover, author of Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. Well, free speech and abortion collided today before the U.S. Supreme Court as they heard one of its biggest cases in 2018. Well, Americans on both sides of the uh, abortion debate are defining issue, uh, define the issue of abortion as uh, one um, that the Supreme Court uh, is deciding uh, now and uh, will have impact much broader than the California uh, specifics. But the case coming before its panel of justices today represented a legal fight that extends beyond the typical pro-life, pro-choice debate. National Institutes of Family and Life Advocates, which is NIFLA versus Basara, which, by the way, I confirmed the uh, pronunciation, is as much a free speech case as an abortion case. At stake is whether the government can require pregnancy resource centers to share information about the availability of abortion elsewhere, advertising to their clients an option that the centers, by definition, oppose. Well, the suit involves a network of more than 100 pregnancy centers in California, where the state's 2015 Reproductive Freedom Accountability Comprehensive Care and Transparency Act, also known as FACT Act, uh, mandates that such centers post uh, contact information for obtaining state-funded free or low-cost contraception and abortions in their county. Along with the wave of pro-life legislation at the state level in recent years, these faith-based uh, pro-life clinics, uh, often called crisis pregnancy centers or pregnancy resource centers, represent a major force in the movement to end abortion, or at least to give an alternative to abortion. They're not political organizations. With more than 3,000 of them in the United States, they 
outnumber abortion clinics three to four times over. The difference is these are nonprofit. They do not uh, profit financially from uh, encouraging women to carry their children to term as opposed to abortion clinics that do. They have a financial interest in encouraging women to end the lives of their children. Well, the negative perception is partly behind the uh, California law. A legislative committee deemed it unfortunate that such centers aim to discourage and prevent women from seeking abortion as if that's something we ought to encourage. Uh, What California considers unfortunate is the very thing the First Amendment protects, argues um, Brian Miller of the Center for Individual Rights, a nonprofit free, uh, free speech law firm. California is within its rights to choose a policy and implement it, but it cannot compel those who dissent to speak the state's message, nor can it target commendable acts of charity because it disagrees with the underlying message. Well, the court heard arguments earlier today. Cal Thomas, in reflecting on uh, all of this, talked about the unbalanced California FACT Act, and he wrote uh, in The Patriot, some might ask in the interest of fairness and and equity, uh, two buzzwords the left likes to use in other situations, whether abortion clinics are required to post notices with information about alternatives to abortion. That procedure, according to Ingrid Duran, state legislation director of the National Right to Life, the nation's oldest and largest pro-life organization, there is no provision in the California so-called FACT Act that will require abortion facilities to inform women about the resources available from pregnancy resource centers. She adds, it's not surprising that the pro-abortion lobby would threaten pregnancy resource centers that offer life-affirming alternatives since this is a contradiction to their mission of the unfettered right to abortion, to abort rather innocent unborn children. Well, in defending the law, California Attorney General Xavier Basara, a Democrat, says everyone is entitled to accurate information about their health care. And that's simply what the FACT Act says. There's nothing coercive, nothing intrusive in the requirement of the law that infringe upon someone's First Amendment rights. It's about making sure women have accurate information about their health care. Abortion, by the way, is not health care, but I'll digress. Um, Cal Thomas writes that I have some personal experience with this issue, having spoken over several decades for fundraising events at nonprofit pregnancy help centers. I've listened to the stories of hundreds of women, as have I, I might mention, some of whom wanted an abortion until they received alternative information, then chose to give birth. I have heard from other women who have had abortions and later regretted their decision. These women told me that they would have chosen to give birth had they received information about alternatives and seen a sonogram of their unborn child. It is the abortion industry which makes money off these vulnerable women that fears information otherwise uh, that would be posting signs in their facilities about alternatives and the kinds of help available during pregnancy and after birth. The pregnancy help centers, unlike the abortionists, do not charge for their services, raising the question of who cares more about women. There are federal laws requiring that certain information be placed on packaged foods. It's called truth in labeling. Women and men are required required to have detailed information when applying for a bank loan or buying a house or car. I once debated a liberal feminist about this. She said I was implying women aren't smart enough to know what their choices are. I replied, fine, then let's remove the labels from packaged products because women should be smart enough to figure out whether they contain corn or green beans. If information is power, then we who are pro-life should favor more information, not less, so that the choices women make will be fully informed. This would include, in addition to 
information about pregnancy help centers, sonograms so that women seeking an abortion could see what she is about to terminate. I've heard stories of women who have viewed sonograms or ultrasounds of their babies deciding against abortion. Uh, Many more view the sonograms and go through with the procedure. But if a sonogram will save even one life, shouldn't we make them mandatory before abortions can be performed? That is a law that should be passed by providing a full spectrum of information. Such a law would empower women to make fully informed choices. It would be far better than the California so-called FACT Act, which undermines the compassionate and free work of that state's pregnancy help centers. And by the way, here in the state of states of Oregon and Washington, when ultrasounds are made available, the vast majority of those women do, in fact, choose to carry their children to term. Well, as I mentioned, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments today for the National Institutes of Family and Life Advocates, or NIFLA versus Basara, one of four cases brought by crisis pregnancy centers challenging the California law as a violation of the First Amendment. Argument inside the court lasted for one hour today. Well, under the California law, licensed pregnancy counseling centers in the state are required to post a government-prescribed message in their facilities and in their advertising to be fined $500 for the first violation, 1000 for each additional violation. The notice has to be written in 48-point uh, uh, type in up to 12 languages, depending on the county. And, of course, the pregnancy centers that receive no public funding whatsoever would have to underwrite the cost of pr- uh, pr- uh, printing and um, uh, displaying these signs and any advertising that they uh, might undertake would also have to be paid for. The state is not underwriting the cost they are imposing. The majority, uh, Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, says uh, the majority of justices voiced concerns today that the law violated the First Amendment. The justices boxed in the state attorney when he had to admit that the mere words choose life on a billboard in the name of a pregnancy center requires the mandated contrary message in 40 point font in 13 languages in Los Angeles County. Justice Sotomayor remarked this requirement is burdensome. The California law forces crisis pregnancy centers to speak a message that goes directly against their religious beliefs and mission to save lives. The First Amendment protects the right to speak and the right to uh, not to speak. I'm very optimistic, Staver says, after the oral argument that the court will strike down the law. We have until June uh, when that decision is very likely to be uh, made public. And another legal news, Liberty Council filed a brief today in Rowan County, Kentucky. Clerk uh, Kim Davis's appeal of attorney's fees awarded to the ACLU for suing Davis in 2015 when she stopped issuing marriage licenses while seeking an accommodation for her religious beliefs. Well, Davis previously won her fight for religious freedom when U.S. District Judge David Bunning issued an order dismissing the ACLU case, Miller v. Davis, along with two other 2015 marriage license lawsuits against her. Well, the The ACLU initially obtained a preliminary injunction against Davis in 2015, ordering her to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples under her name and authority. However, Judge Bunning sent Davis uh, to jail for six days because she would not violate her conscience. After her release, incoming Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin signed an executive order creating a marriage license form which is not issued under a county clerk's name and authority. The Kentucky General Assembly made Governor Bevin's changes permanent with a bill that passed with unanimous vote in both the state, uh, state House and Senate. The changes in Kentucky law made the ACLU claims moot and the federal Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals order that the ACLU's preliminary injunction be vacated. A uh, federal magistrate judge previously denied their request for attorney's fees, holding that the ACLU's clients were not prevailing parties under the applicable legal standard. 
The law um, now requires that uh, she not, or rather the decision that she not be required to pay the ACLU's attorney's fees. Up next, we're going to talk with Christine Hoover, her book, Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the darkest seasons of life, believers often struggle to find the meaning and beauty that God promises his people. My next guest, author Christine Hoover's Searching for Spring, addresses these feelings of despair and hopelessness while equipping her readers to challenge their own perspective on the true beauty of God. Those who feel lost in an unfulfilled stage of life will gain perspective from the recognition of beauty in each season. The Creator's love can be found in the most unexpected places with guidance uh, from uh, her book. She's a writer, speaker, church planter. Well, Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time takes readers through the biblical narrative of a perfect creation and the redemption of that beauty following the fall. Those seeking the beauty and the promise of God in the midst of their brokenness and this broken world will find a renewed sense of understanding and patience. Christine Hoover is the wife of a church planting pastor, Kyle, and the author of several books. After working in ministry for years, She speaks on the revolutionary nature of Christ's grace in her own life. She's a mom of three boys. She resides in Charlottesville, Virginia, in that area where she and her husband, Kyle, led a church plant in 2008. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Searching for Spring on This First Day of Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, your book is written for those who feel um, disheartened by the world, and certainly there's a lot to to be discouraged and disheartened by. Um, when we're searching for meaning, what would you say um, to those readers of your book who are on the verge of despairing um, and, and searching for that meaning? Mm-hmm. Well, I use the analogy of the seasons because it's something that we can all, no matter where we are, we can look out and we can see. Even if we live in a big city, we can look at, at the sky, we can look at the stars, if we can see the stars at night. Um, we can look around at the diversity of the people that God has created and all of those things we can we can look at, and that's what I use in the book to, to, to say, look at those things and, and see the beauty of those things, and then let that take you beyond to think about who made those things. And so what, what is creation teaching us about who God is and how he acts and how he's moving? And what does that say about who we are and who we are in God's plan and what he's doing in our lives? Now, the book, not surprisingly, is divided into four sections, each one representing the seasons. We just started spring today. That's one of the shorter chapters, as is summer. Fall is a little longer, but your longest uh, part of the book is on winter. Um, why so much written about winter um, in terms of how we uh, find that, that there is beauty in all that God does in the season that is perhaps the most bleak? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we all at some point in life, we find out that life can feel like winter. It, we can experience it like winter. Uh, summer is, I use the analogy of summer just to describe what it's like before we suffer, before we come into a time where we realize that life isn't necessarily going to work out the way that we thought it would. And for some people, that's very early in life, and for some it's later, but we all experience that time where uh, we we suffer because of the fall of Adam and Eve's sin, but we also suffer because of our own choices sometimes. And so winter is 
the most of the book is about winter because I think that is what where we question the most, where we doubt the most, and when we're experiencing suffering and pain, we we're asking the question, where is God, and what is He doing? And um, so that's why the most of the book is about winter. Just how do, how do we sit in those things, and what how do we wait well in those things, believing that God is going to bring something beautiful spring is the analogy I use, but how, how, how can we sit in that and believe he's going to make something beautiful out of where we are and mm-hmm. what we're experiencing in our winter? Now, um, searching for spring centers on the beauty of creation. Most of us live in um, highly populated areas. We are detached perhaps more so than any other generation from creation in ways that our, our parents and grandparents perhaps enjoyed uh, creation. Uh, talk a little bit about why centering on the beauty of creation can help us walk through these seasons in life, uh, recognizing the beauty that God has uh, has for us, even when uh, things are challenging. Mm-hmm. I think that God has placed things in our world that are there simply to point to Him. I mean, creation, all creation does that. That's what Scripture says, that it pours forth speech every day. And so when we're paying attention to creation, um, looking around us and actually taking in what's happening, I think those are pointers to God. And so, yes, we live in often populated areas. We live busy lives, distracted lives. But I do think that we need to stop and engage where we can of what God has created, whether it's people or Um, even a patch of grass in the middle of the city where we can just reflect on how things grow, that there are times where creation is dormant, where um, waves are still, and there are times where the ocean is raging, and there are times where we see fruit and growth. And I think that speaks to the same pattern of spiritual growth in our life, that there are times where we are in winter and we don't know what God is doing. But looking, a lot of the book I'm saying, look back and look and see how God has worked in the past. And then knowing that he is the same God working in us, and that he will, he will produce in our lives fruit from the pain that we're in. In your first chapter on summer uh, titled Hide and Seek, one of the things you write is <clears throat> that beauty um, needs time. And you write, beauty is not immediate. It often unveils itself slowly through much waiting, much seeking, and sometimes much heartache. Um, and beauty is sometimes um, hidden from us I- immediately, but the seasons teach us something about God's pattern in revealing beauty over time. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I do think that that's important to think about, that the, the dormancy, the even the pruning that we see and, and that it's required in nature, that it's through that that the fruit comes. And so a lot of the things that we, we want and that we desire that we would— uh, that we would call beautiful are things like perseverance and hope and, and love and joy. Those things are often things birthed in us that through painful things, things that we would say are ugly, that we don't want. And so the point that I'm making there is just to help us to see that sometimes what we most want, it is going to come through, it can come through something that's difficult. In the second part of your book, you focus on fall and you quote Andrew Peterson when he writes, don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds. What can we learn from fall as we are seeking beauty? Mm -hmm. 
Well, in, in the section in the book on fall, I really look back at the history of time of how we how we saw Jesus walking on earth and what he did and what he said. And I think that we as Christians often overlook what Jesus didn't say. Um, we put words in his mouth uh, that he, I think we tend to think that he came to fix everything. And he did come and he did live a perfect life and he died and he rose again and he saved us from our sins. But then he left earth and he left things unfixed that we still experience the consequences of our sin. We still struggle against it. We still fight temptation. Our world is still broken. And so in fall, I was in the section on fall, I was really trying to to show that what Jesus really said is that life comes through death. And then he proved that through his own death. Um, And so the experiences that we have of pain often feel that same thing, that it's it's, there's a sense of death that we experience. But through Jesus' death, he brought beauty. He brought life. And uh, we're going to experience the same kinds of things, or we can. Um, and so really that section is looking back and saying, this is how God's been faithful in the past to bring beauty from pain. And if he did, did it in, in that through Jesus, then he's going to do it in us as well. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Christine Hoover. Her book is titled Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. The book is published by Baker. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing a conversation with Christine Hoover. Her book is titled Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. Russell Moore, president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, says this, Too often the ugliness of sin and the brokenness of our world cause us to lose sight of the beauty of our God. Searching for Spring reminds us of this beauty, of the wonders of God's creation and Christ's promise to make all things new. Read and wonder as Christine Hoover teaches us to see the beauty and hope ever present amid pain. We talked a little bit about the fall, today being the first day of spring. Let's shift our focus on spring and what we can learn about beauty from spring. Mm. Well, spring is the analogy I use for the new heavens and new earth. And so all of the book that uh, I wrote, Searching for Spring, leads up to that chapter. And the winter is the waiting time, and that's where we are now. And there's a lot in there about how we can wait, how we can wait well, and what are the things that help us wait, what I call wait forward. And so spring um, is just that final redemption that we're waiting for. And what will that be like? And so um, in, in, that, in that chapter, I just go into detail about uh, what that time will be and why it will be worth the wait. Yeah, yeah. To what extent does the suffering we experience um, allow us to see beauty? Because we tend to think that they are completely separate and one can only experience one in, in favorable times and it's completely obscured during challenging times. Mm-hmm. I do think it's hard to see in challenging mm-hmm. times and I do think it's, it's a process that uh, the beauty comes through time. Uh, I think about in my own life the suffering that I have experienced. Um, you know, there's some circumstances in my life that I can't change that will always be um, that are difficult, and um, it's through that that suffering specifically that a lot of my assumptions about who God is 
were kind of wiped clean. And some of that was an idea that God is, that it's kind of a transactional relationship, that if I do certain things and God is going to act a certain way, and, and then suffering came, and I realized that God was a little more unexpected than I had previously thought. And through kind of having to go back just to the basics of the foundational truths of who he is, I, I realized I had a lot of um, beliefs that, that weren't biblical. They weren't true about who God was. And it it was the suffering specifically that led me through the process of questioning, of doubting, of asking questions of, of myself and of the scripture that taught me more and more of who God is. And so I would say that the beauty of who God is came through that experience. And Mm -hmm. so it was a process. I don't think it was immediate in my suffering. I can immediately see, oh, God is good here. He is beautiful in this. But it is through the process that I have learned that he's faithful and that I can walk through suffering now knowing that he will not let me go and that he will help me through that process of, of suffering. How can we encourage others to seek beauty in times of despair? Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I have learned, and this is something I talk a lot about in the book, mm-hmm. is that when we're in the present, it's really hard to see clearly. It just is. It's it's foggy, even things that are good. It's hard for us to fully take in. And so when we're in the midst of pain or suffering, one thing that we can do is we can look back and we can, this, there's kind of this pattern even of scripture where God tells people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, he says, now, now that I've freed you from slavery, I've given you this land, I want you to look back and remember how I did that and how I was faithful to you. And I think we can do the same thing. We can look back and we can see how has God been faithful, not only to us in our individual lives, but how has he acted in history? How has he been faithful in history, in scripture? Because that's he he has an unchanging nature, and so he he will be that same God to us. And at the same time, we want to look forward, and that's again what he did in in the Old Testament, where you know, after they're um, they're in exile, they've they've been disciplined for their sin. The prophets come along, and through them, God says, "Look forward, look forward. There's going to be a Messiah that comes. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to return you to your land." And that same pattern is in the New Testament. After Jesus, the writers tell us to look back at at Jesus and look forward to his return. And so I think that's that same pattern we can follow when we're in the midst of suffering, when we cannot see clearly, look back at how God's been faithful, and then know the promises of what God says he's going to do in the future so that we can look ahead, believing that he will do the same for us. How have you personally experienced the seasons, plural, of God's uh, promises? Mm. Well, I mentioned some suffering, some circumstances. One of my children was diagnosed. Um, he has special needs. And when that diagnosis came, that plunged me into winter time, uh, several years of really grieving. And I think that grieving is something we also don't always know how to do well. Mm-hmm. I think we need to move past it, right? But uh, I, I experienced that winter and just sitting in it, sitting and wondering what the future would be like for my son and for our family. Uh, I've experienced that. And, and like I said earlier, I think it was through that that I began to truly know what hope was. There, there hadn't been anything that I'd really experienced that had shaken my hope. 
or shown me that I had false hopes, that I had put hope in my idea of what my son would be like, what our family would look like. And so through that winter, I learned and really sought out what is, what is my true hope and how, how can I look forward to God doing something good, not only in, this, in the eternal future, but in this future here on earth. What are the promises that are true for me and for my son? The book is deeply personal um, to the Christian experience. Um, how did that come to be? How did the book come to be? Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually, this book was birthed out of a conversation, several conversations I was having with my, one of my friends who was going through uh, an intense suffering in her marriage. Um, she had been very hurt and was very angry. And as we were sitting having these conversations, it really challenged me in my response to her. What, what is true hope to offer it with somebody who's really, really hurting? is what I'm saying. It was almost like I was trying on my own theology of who God was and mm-hmm. what he could do, what he would do. And through that conversation, uh, I began asking those same questions kind of alongside her. And at the same time, I was reading Ecclesiastes and uh, Ecclesiastes 3, that this verse, God makes everything beautiful in its time. And I was trying to kind of reconcile those two things. And so that got me thinking, and that's where this book came out of. It's written for the the person who's weary, who's discouraged. It's written for the person who is in pain, uh, is uncertain of the future. Uh, It's really written for my friends. Yeah. Again, the title of the book is Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. Christine Hoover, thank you so much for joining us today and for uh, providing a way for us to see through the difficulties that we might be facing today into the seasons to come. Mm, Thank you for having me. Thank you. Again, Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. Again, the book is published by Baker Books. In the next hour, we're going to talk with uh, Angie Taylor. She's the head of school at Valor Christian International School, or School International, I should say. And I want to remind you that if you are considering a private Christian education for your sons or daughter, uh, if you are a grandparent and you'd like to uh, provide that opportunity, we have some uh, discounts on tuition, and I would encourage you to go to listenersavings.com, look for the school tuition, and there you'll find uh, schools here in this metro area that are offering up to 40% discounts on tuition. Check it out. And who knows, you might be able to afford Christian education when you thought that might not be possible. We've got news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Later this hour, we're going to talk with the head of school, Angie Taylor from Valor Christian School International. You'll learn more about what they have to offer in our community, and they're doing some great things there. I'd also encourage you to check out listenersavings.com. You can learn more about uh, tuition discounts to a number of Christian schools in our community, up to 40%. So check it out. This may be the year that you uh, you start your son and daughter in private Christian education. Uh, Angie Taylor will join us at the bottom of the hour. 
Well, Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant signed into law Monday a bill that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, enacting what amounts to the most restrictive abortion law in the country. The Gestational Age Act, as it's called, reduces the state's previously enacted 20-week ban to 15 weeks, including exceptions for medical emergencies and severe fetal abnormality, but not for cases of rape and incest. Doctors who perform abortions after 15 weeks have to explain the extenuating circumstance and written reports and face the revocation of their medical license should they knowingly violate the law. As I have repeatedly said, Bryant tweeted earlier this month, I want Mississippi to be the safest place in America for an unborn child. Well, prior to the law's passage, Mississippi was already considered one of the most restrictive states with regard to abortion. It has uh, only one operating clinic, requires that abortion providers are board-certified or board-eligible physicians, mandates a 24-hour waiting period and individual counseling for the mother prior to the abortion. The state's only abortion provider filed a suit challenging the law hours after it was signed, according to the Associated Press. Abortion rights advocates uh, were quick to attack the legislation as a, uh, a means to deprive women of a right afforded them by the Supreme Court. Their daughters, not so much. Abortion is a safe medical procedure they say, and it is a critical part of the broad spectrum of reproductive health care that a woman may use in her lifetime. Felicia Brown-Williams, Mississippi State Director for Planned Parenthood Southeast Advocates, uh, in a statement said, this ban is not only unconstitutional, it endangers women's health care across our state because she considers abortion health care. It certainly isn't for the mother who's getting one or for the the daughter that uh, may be the subject of that abortion, but I digress. If lawmakers uh, truly cared, she went on to say, about women's health, they would be focused on ways to improve access to health care for women, not restrict it. But, of course, access to health care is not the issue here. Anyway, Republican State Representative Dan Eubanks, meanwhile, praised the legislation as a positive development for unborn children, half of whom are women, and expectant mothers. Beyond the obvious, he said, the obvious debate of trying to save the lives of innocent babies, there is the often less discussed issues that relates to the health of the mother who receives an abortion. Eubanks was speaking on CNN via email. When did looking out for the life, health, and overall well-being of a child or its mother start getting labeled as extreme? In this country. Well, that was back in the early 70s. Well, a recent government report has revealed that Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest abortion provider, received over $1.5 billion in taxpayer funds from 2013 to 2015. In 2016, over 120 House and Senate members sent a letter to the Government Accountability Office requesting information on federal funding for certain organizations involved in health-related activities. The report was made public last week, and the findings are astounding. Over a three-year period, Planned Parenthood and its affiliates spent $200 million in federal funds. They also received $1.2 billion in funding from Medicaid, which combines federal and state funds. That adds up to a whopping $1.5 billion in taxpayer funds from federal health programs. Yet despite receiving billions in taxpayer funds over the course of three years, Planned Parenthood's scope and services have both declined. The organization's 2015-2016 report revealed that Planned Parenthood served 100,000 fewer women in 2015 and 2016, compared to 2014-2015. Its numbers of health centers and affiliates declined, and it's performed fewer cancer screenings and prevention services, you know, the health care they so often boast about. It also performed fewer breast examinations, fewer HPV vaccinations, and provided prenatal services to 8,000 fewer women 
than the previous year. But the abortion giant did perform several thousand more abortions than the year prior, 328,348 distinct individuals compared to the previous year's 323,999 distinct individual human children. Moreover, Planned Parenthood performed 83 abortions for every one adoption referred. Planned Parenthood claims to provide a full range of women's health services and to present women with a variety of choices, but the figures make clear its real priorities. Abortion remains Planned Parenthood's bottom line. The Government Accountability Office report also revealed huge sums of taxpayer money went to other abortion providers and from 2013 to 15. Marie Stopes International and International Planned Parenthood Federation received $110 million and $14 million, respectively, for global health assistance through the U.S. Agency for International Development. Fortunately, in 2017, President Trump reinstated the Mexico City policy, a.k.a. Protecting Life and Global Health Assistance Policy, so that now these organizations can only receive these global health assistance funds on the condition they do not perform or promote abortions overseas. That doesn't mean, doesn't just mean you can't use this money for that purpose. You can't be engaged in performing or promoting abortion at all in order to be eligible. Well, that's good news, but there's still much more to be done to prevent public funds from being tied up with the abortion on demand and its industry. Congress should make it a priority to defund Planned Parenthood and instead direct those funds toward the thousands of centers that provide health care for women without entangling government with the abortion industry. I'm not talking about pregnancy resource centers. I'm talking about public health centers uh, that actually do provide health care for women. Congress should then turn its attention to the No Taxpayer Funding of Abortion Act, which would permanently end taxpayer funding for abortion. I mean, after all, allow abortion providers and those who support it to underwrite the practice, as do pro-lifers underwriting what pregnancy resource centers and other um, provisions uh, provide. That bill passed the House of Representatives in January of 2017. The The Senate, rather, has failed to take it up. Well, these shocking new numbers underscore the urgent need for policymakers to move on this issue. We need to end taxpayer funding for abortion once and for all. And there's no better time than the present. Well, if there aren't atheists in foxholes, why should we put them in the chaplain corps? Senator Roger Weicker can't imagine. Well, like most leaders, he's astounded that the Navy is even considering letting someone who doesn't believe in God join the chaplaincy Seems like something of an oxymoron, a contradiction. Well, three years ago, the idea was so absurd that even Obama's military attorneys went to court to stop it. Now, with Secretary Jim Mattis at the helm, no one can quite understand why the topic is even up for discussion. Well, the bizarre storyline started in 2015 when Jason Heap tried to sue his way into the chaplaincy. Not surprisingly, the Navy rejected him because he planned to associate with two humanist groups instead of an actual religious denomination chaplain religion. Ultimately, the military ended up in court defending the notion that religious leadership, religious leaders should serve as religious or serve a religious purpose. It won. But this year, Heap is trying again. And according to Senator Weicker, the chaplain appointment and retention eligibility advisory group is actually recommending the Navy accept him. Weicker, an Air Force veteran and member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, is doing everything he can to keep the application from moving forward. And he's enlisted 22 other senators and 40-plus House members to help. In two separate letters to Navy Secretary Richard Spencer, both chambers 
uh, explain how radically this um, would alter the chaplain corps. Obviously, the dozens of leaders explain no one is trying, uh, saying that atheists don't belong in the military, but allowing them to serve and allowing them in the pulpit are two very different things. The Navy has sufficient authority to create programs for humanist and atheist service members, the senators write. The chaplain corps is not the appropriate place. The chaplain corps serves religious needs, not philosophical preferences. Approving a secular humanist chaplain would open the door to other application uh, applicants rather representing other philosophical worldviews. Over time, the situation would erode the distinct religious function of the chaplain corps. So they're suggesting there's another mechanism or they could create another mechanism for that kind of philosophical preference. The idea is even more ridiculous when you consider that barely 3% of our service members even identify as atheist or humanist. To fling open the chaplaincy to any ideology or philosophy would fundamentally change an institution that's older than the country itself. Not to to mention, the House letters remind the Navy that the Department of Defense's own guidelines also reinforce the uniquely religious purpose of the Chaplain Corps, defining religious organization as an entity that is organized and functions primarily to perform religious ministries to a non-military lay constituency, and defining a religious ministry professional as an individual endorsed to represent a religious organization and to conduct its religious observances. Continue to follow what happens... The Trump administration inherited plenty of messes from the previous military leadership, but this isn't one of them. It's time for Secretary Mattis to step in, protect the integrity of the chaplaincy. 16 minutes after 5, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next segment, we're going to talk with Angie Taylor. She's the head of school at Valor Christian School International. I think you'll be thrilled to hear what they're doing there. And if you're interested in considering private Christian education for your kids, your sons and daughters, let me encourage you to go to listenersavings.com for more information about uh, tuition discounts of up to 40%. Well, imagine, if you can, Arlington Cemetery with no crosses. Imagine the word God sandblasted from the tomb of the unknown soldier. Imagine biblical verses removed from the U.S. Capitol. Well, this is the world the radical atheists are looking for. This is the world they almost have. Carolyn Lewis points out that First Liberty Institute, the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to defending religious freedom, is currently appealing a case to the Supreme Court, so this doesn't happen. Well, here's how it started. In 1925, Gold Star Families and the American Legion, the largest veteran service organization in the country, built the 40-foot-tall Bladensburg Veterans Memorial, also known as the Peace Cross, in memory of the 49 men of Prince George's County, Maryland, who died in World War I. The names of the 49 deceased veterans and the words Courage, Valor, Endurance and devotion appear on that monument. Well, the cross stood as a peaceful memorial to the fallen veterans until February of 2014, when the American Humanist Association, or AHA, claimed that the monument unconstitutionally violated the Establishment Clause because its public ownership and demanded that it be demolished, altered, or removed. The U.S. District Court for the District of Maryland ruled in favor of the monument's constitutionality, citing the cross as a military symbol for sacrifice, courage, and remembrance. However, in December of 2015, the AHA appealed that decision to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled that the memorial was unconstitutional. 
In March, the um, Fourth Circuit denied the en banc uh, rehearing, leaving an appeal to the Supreme Court as the final option. Hiram Sasser, chief counsel for First Liberty, notes that if the Fourth Circuit decision stands, other memorials, including those in nearby Arlington Cemetery, will be targeted for destruction as well. If the decision from the Fourth Circuit stands and the Supreme Court refuses to hear the appeals case, it would mean that all crosses on public property are unconstitutional. Well, the case rests on whether the Establishment Clause, the first sentence of the First Amendment, which states Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, prohibits the public display of crosses. Now, the establishment of a religious religion rather means having an official government sponsored religion. Some have also interpreted the Establishment Clause as meaning government neutrality. According to the American Humanist Association's website, the Establishment Clause also prohibits the government from entangling itself in religious matters without a religiously neutral reason. Government ought to be neutral toward religion and not favor one over the other. But a big difference exists between neutrality and hostility. And while the AHA claims uh, good without a God uh, as its motto, it's uh, it's fair Uh, It is fair or tolerant uh, to force that belief on everyone else, or is it? Uh, Radical atheism does not say, I believe in nothing, and you can believe in God if you want. Rather, it says, I believe in nothing, and it is my right to not see, hear, or experience anything about God anywhere. Whether it is, uh, no, you can't pray, or no, you can't put a Bible verse there, no, I don't want to see a cross, even if it's in the middle of the desert. The radical atheists don't uh, seek to live in mutual tolerance. They can't rest until they've converted all of society into a religiously sterile culture. The legal system should not bow to this this dogmatic, anti-tolerant behavior as a neutral option, rather, as a radical one. Well, following their Fourth Circuit uh, win, the AHA senior counsel, Monica Miller, who argued the case, stated, this is a big win not only for separation of church and state, but for all non-Christian veterans who are excluded from an enormous Christian Cross War Memorial. But how many of the fallen men were actually atheists? The families of the fallen soldiers decided on that particular shape to remember their fallen sons, brothers and husbands. Would it not dishonor their choice to remove or destroy it? If, in fact, non-Christian veterans feel excluded, why do they not build their own non-cross memorial? Well, further, while the AHA um, argues that the cross represents a sectarian, exclusionary religious symbol, the cross also represents military heroism. Some of the highest military honors include crosses such as the Distinguished Service Cross, the Air Force Cross, the Navy Cross, and others uh, granted for exemplary military service. The cross also stands as an internationally recognized symbol of bravery and sacrifice as exemplified in the Victoria Cross in uh, England and the Croix de Guerre, the cross of war in France. Well, the cross also represents a memorial. These men lost their lives in a foreign war on foreign soil. And while some of their bodies were later repatriated, many were buried overseas. For several families, the Peace Cross stood as the only place where grieving families could come, pay their honor to their loved ones, and remember. Michael Carvin, who's the lead counsel for the American Legion and partner with Jones Day, notes that this memorial has stood in honor of local veterans for almost 100 years and is lawful under the First Amendment. To remove it would be a tremendous dishonor to the local men who gave their lives during the Great War. Well, the case also has bipartisan support. Eight Republican and Democrat members of Congress joined in support of the memorial by filing an amicus brief with the Fourth Circuit Court. Kelly Shackelford, president and CEO of First Liberty, states that memorials are living reminders of our country's history and the cost of war. 
How will we remember the fallen or teach the next generation about service and sacrifice if we start bulldozing veterans' memorials and cemeteries across America? We will continue our work to overturn this decision and defend the memory of those who uh, preserved our freedom. Well, it was on March the 1st that the Fourth Circuit denied the uh, the uh, rehearing, uh, leaving an appeal to the Supreme Court as the final option. And one can only hope that the Supreme Court uh, will recognize the right for the cross to stand and also encourage if uh, atheists want to preserve uh, for themselves a memorial of a different kind, that they pursue that instead. Well, the list uh, compiled by a group of college librarians in Boston counts God bless you as an anti-Muslim microaggression. Merry Christmas is also an offensive phrase, according to the Anti-Oppression Library Guide, written by a group of librarians at Simmons College in Boston, saying God bless you after someone sneezes is a microaggression against Muslim people, whether or not they're actually present. They call it Islamomissic. Uh, Microaggressions are commonplace verbal or behavioral indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, which communities, which communicates rather hostile, derogatory or negative slights in relation to the beliefs and religious practices of Muslims. The guide explains they are structurally based and invoke oppressive systems of religious Christian hierarchy. Wow. Someone sneeze. You say God bless you. And all of that apparently is packed into it. The guide explains that um, Islamomissia. It's another word for Islamophobia, which is a systematized discrimination or antagonism directed against Muslim people due to their religion or perceived religious, national or ethnic identity associated with Islam. Like anti-Semitism, they say Islamizia describes mentalities and actions that demean an entire class of people. So um, suggesting that a person be blessed Using the word God rather than Allah is so offensive that it should not be permitted, according to these librarians. Um, Rather interesting. According to the guide saying God bless you after someone sneezes conveys one's perception that everyone is Christian or believes in God, which is offensive because it conveys people's presumption that their religion is the standard. Failure to do so, I suggest I would um, argue, would suggest that everyone is an unbeliever or is an atheist and therefore believers should be offended at the absence of. Or we could just uh, live in a tolerant society where we recognize we have different views and we are gracious to one another. There's a thought. Just thinking we might want to try to get along. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk with Angie Taylor. She's the head of school at Valor Christian School International. Stick around. You're going to want to learn about what they're doing because it's pretty remarkable. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. It has been a real delight for me as we are focusing on our listener savings in which some of the Christian schools in our community are offering uh, tuition discounts to highlight and feature some of these schools that are doing extraordinary work in our community. Today, we're going to talk with Angie Taylor, who is the head of school at Valor Christian School International. And they're located in the Beaverton area uh, in Living Home, uh, Living Hope, rather, Fellowship Church, and I am just delighted once again to draw our attention to uh, the leaders that they are developing and training at Valor Christian School International. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Georgie, and I appreciate the invite. Now, Valor Christian is a, it really was a dream of yours for some 20 years before God opened the door for this school to, uh, to open its doors. Yeah, that's, that's actually really true. Having been a part of 
education, both public and private, for about 24 years, really started seeing some gaps in the system that I felt like we could address in uh, more innovative ways. Now, let's talk about what sets Valor Christian School International apart from some other schools in the community, uh, because you all are doing some very unique things. We are, actually. We're in, in fact, it's interesting that uh, the timing of this call is great. We are just getting ready uh, next week to launch our high school students literally all over the world. We have a team going to India, a team going to the Philippines, a team going to Haiti, and then a team staying local here in downtown Portland to do both education work as well as missional work. And that really is a stream that runs all the way through uh, Valor Christian School International, whether we're talking about the high school students who are going abroad or ministering here at home, but also they're responsible and in helping to train and involve the younger students as well. Correct. It, uh, the school itself, K through 12, is all really focused on how do we add value? How do we contribute to the community around us as well as abroad? I think at the end of the day, what I kept finding was running into people that loved the idea of being part of something bigger, helping community, helping you know, on a global scale, but really didn't know how to do that. And at the end of the day, as a parent, by the time you've worked, you go home, help your kid with homework and do their after school sport. What you find is there's just not enough time or money. So our thought with Valor is how do we uh, put our community on mission as a whole and, and make it one place to come where we can all engage on mission? One of the distinguishers of our school is we are a one-to-one school, which mm-hmm. means for one tuition, we're sponsoring a student in a developing nation into education. And so what that means is right now we have um, 92 kids in Kenya being sponsored into education, 80 kids in Haiti, 80 and uh 70 kids in the Philippines receiving education that didn't have access to education prior to Valor starting. And each of your students is paired with a student in need of education in one of those areas of the world. Correct. Correct. Remarkable. We do a lot of Skype phone calls. It really is about global relationship. Uh, this year, the new thing for us this year is we actually started a mirror campus in South Korea and um, started an exchange program with those students. So we've had our students on their campus for 12 weeks and their students on our campus for 12 weeks. So it really is a global community um, in every sense of the word. I know that Valor Christian School International is focused on developing confident, creative, wise Christ followers and leaders. Let's talk about um, the academic rigor as well as the focus on a Christ-centered education. Sure. When it comes to the academics, you know, we've really taken our lead from both Harvard and Stanford in their recent research that's coming out that um, no longer is it acceptable simply just to go after rote memory or to have our students, you know, our students know at the core of them that they can study for a test for three hours memorizing content that in two seconds they can Google or they can YouTube the answer to. Mm -hmm. And so it's incumbent upon us to understand the lay of the land for our students, the Statistics right now tell us that about 65% of the jobs that will exist um, currently don't exist for the kids in elementary school. And it's essential with the development of technology and AI that we start preparing our kids 
to think critically about how are we leveraging information and using it in meaningful and applicable ways in new ways. So our approach is very innovative. However, we can support our approach with a lot of data and research. Uh, again, uh, just an excellent approach. I know that you really emphasize that your students understand that God has a plan and purpose for their lives, that they would discover that passion and gifting, uh, and that they would take the lead in their chosen profession. Let's talk about the, the aspect of their, the Christian faith that is a part of the, uh, the education at Valor Christian School International. One of the things that's been really concerning to me in the Christian community that I've seen and, and am personally guilty of is that idea that we're, we are hearers of God's Word, not doers of God's mm-hmm. Word. And um, you see that a lot in the education and training of our kids, where we're doing a great job of telling our kids about the Bible and having them memorize the Bible. But where are we asking them to put into practice and giving them opportunities to train them to be transformers of culture? You know, where are Jesus at? while he was here on earth, was a disruptor. He was constantly making bridges and pathways for people to come to know him. And it's imperative that we prepare our students with a testimony on their lips, but also give them opportunities to serve, to minister, to be action-oriented in their faith. And so that's a key element of who we are. But what we try to do and um, our, our students take Strength Finders tests where we're, we really try to engage them in their unique individual skill sets and calling um, in order to be effective in kingdom work. We're talking with Angie Taylor. She's the head of school at Valor Christian School International. They're located at Living Hope Fellowship Church in Southwest Beaverton. And uh, I know that one of the reasons that we are focusing on Christian education is that there's a, a, a rare opportunity uh, to do a little saving on tuition. And in this case, uh, the high school tuition, there's a discount there. And our listeners can find out more at listenersavings.com. But for parents who are interested in and what you've just described is, a, is academic rigor with a Christ-centered focus and a, a missional emphasis, and they want to learn more. What's the best way for them to do that? Well, there's a couple of ways they can do that. First, we would love to invite them to take a tour on our campus, meet our staff, have their student shadow on our campus. They can also check us out at ballerschool.org. We also have a Facebook presence that would give you a good flavor and feel for who we are as a school. Again, that's ballerschool.org. And the Facebook page, just Valor School? Yep, Valor School International. Valor School International. Well, before we uh, end our conversation, let me just give you an opportunity to speak to our listeners. Why should they consider their sons, daughters, grandchildren? uh, Why should they consider, rather, Valor Christian School International for them? Well, I think this, I think we're handing our world, our kids a world in crisis. And if we are not equipping and empowering them to step into those places to solve problems, then we're not preparing them well for the world that we're handing them. The the reality is, is in knowing Jesus, we have wisdom from the very throne room of God. And because of that, our ability to speak light and to speak truth into the places in the world, into some of the most major crises of this world is pretty profound. And I think it's imperative that everyone's child is part of a school that is actively engaged in equipping and empowering their child to step into their place, their God-given place in the world. And Valor's Christian School International 
National is certainly a place just like that. Well, Angie Taylor, thank you for the work that you're doing in educating young people and for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. We appreciate the time. Appreciate it very much. Again, Valor Christian School International, their website, valorschool.org, or on Facebook, Valor School International um, uh, there. Now, you can also go to listenersavings.com, and there you're going to find uh, a list of um, tuition discounts. Valor School, they've sold out on a couple of them. They still have tuition discounts, I believe two of them available for their high school tuition, and you can learn all the important details about that at listenersavings.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the moment has finally arrived. It's the moment warm weather fans have been waiting for. The first day of spring has officially arrived here in the Northern Hemisphere, though some states may not believe that. Fortunately, we're in the Pacific Northwest, but a winter a winter weather storm system is expected to creep up the middle Atlantic and northeastern coasts today, or rather tonight and Wednesday, and they say it could bring a lot of snow. You can expect mixed precipitation for the mid-Atlantic on Tuesday, switching to snow on Wednesday from the mid-Atlantic to New England. The National Weather Service warned earlier today the storm is going to be a powerful one. It could dump uh, to up to 18 inches of snow in some locations, marking the fourth nor'easter to smack the region in three weeks. So, again, fortunately, we are in the Pacific Northwest. Winter weather may still be lingering there, but that hasn't stopped people across the country from celebrating what's known as the vernal equinox. Well, some things you might want to know about what that means. Uh, it happens every, um, every March. Uh, equinoxes occur twice a year in March and September, and they mark the onset of spring and autumn. Now, during an equinox, which is uh, Latin for uh, equal uh, night, both day and night are equal, or at least virtually so. Today, the length of night and day are nearly equal. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, uh, saying earlier today that the days are now uh, longer at the higher latitudes because it takes the sun longer to rise and set. We call it spring, and we've been looking forward to it here. Uh, on this day, the sun crosses the celestial equ- uh, equator, rather, the imaginary line in the sky above the Earth's equator for uh, from south to north. The National Weather Service in Jackson, Mississippi, explained in a tweet earlier today, the sun will be exactly overhead at approximately 1215 Eastern time. You can do the math. Uh, for Pacific time. That's according to time and date. So that's when it officially occurred. Well, does the vernal equinox uh, fall on the same day every year? The answer is no. The first day of spring can arrive anywhere from the 19th of March to the 21st, depending on the year. And due to time zone zip differences, the equinox may occur a day earlier at locations that are behind Uh, UTC, according to time and date. Well, our calendar year doesn't always have an even number of days. Every four years, an extra day known as leap day, in fact, my father was born on a leap day, is added in the month of February. The March equinox would occur on the same day every year if the, the, uh, the Earth took exactly 365 days to make a complete revolution around the sun. But this is not the case. It takes the Earth about 365.25 days on average to go around the sun once. That's why the the start of uh, spring, the vernal equinox, changes dates. Well, why do people try to balance eggs on this day? Balance eggs. Well, it's an ancient myth. It claims an egg can balance on its end only during the vernal equinox. And every year, people gather together to attempt the challenge. 
It happened this year. It'll happen next. The myth was popularized here in the United States following a Life magazine article in 1945. Some of you don't even know what that magazine is. I remember it. It explained the old spring adage, AccuWeather reports, but that myth has proven to be false. The vernal equinox brings no special egg balancing properties with it. Sadly, fact-checking website Snopes confirmed this in a post online. Standing an egg on its end is something just about anyone can do any day of the year. The feat simply takes the right egg and a little trial and practice. So you might want to try it tomorrow. So why do people flock to, um, uh, to certain places on this particular day? Well, during the equinox, people often turn to um, Chichen Itza. It's an ancient complex constructed by the Mayans. It was located in central Mexico to watch the sunset. They're hoping to witness a very special shadow that's cast on the structure. Incredibly, twice a year on the spring and autumn equinoxes, a shadow does fall on the pyramid in the shape of a serpent. That's according to National Geographic. Well, as the sun sets, this shadowy snake descends the steps to eventually join a stone serpent, uh, the, the head of a stone serpent, a serpent at the base of the great staircase up the pyramid's side. So it's something interesting to see. It's essentially meaningless, but it's uh, kind of a fun thing if you can make it for the vernal equinox. Well, of course, spring started right here. Uh, here in the Portland metro area this morning with sunshine and 60-degree temperatures here in the Rose Cities. But it quickly will turn wet and chilly, we're being told, with snow levels near 1,500 feet by Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Well, despite the uh, bumpy start, the spring outlook for the months of April, May, and June looks pretty promising for pleasant weather. Look for temperatures to be near the normal average or slightly below, so a little chilly. Uh, Spring outlook for April, May, and June shows temperatures near normal or below and quite uh, uh, quite a bit of rain. Uh, meanwhile, no soakers uh, this month. Uh, just a little nice weather. The bigger headline is the uh, continuation of a below normal rainfall pattern. Keep in mind that normal spring precipitation for Portland is actually very pleasant, with two out of three days typically being dry. You might recall March and April of 2017, you know, last year, dumped soaking rains that equaled nearly a foot of water. The surplus moisture of uh, more than five inches soaked the ground into mid-May. If the outlook is correct, this spring will see plenty of dry days to mow the lawn. Enjoy the beauty of the Northwest. Spring now being officially here. I love seeing the crocuses, the daffodils, the flowers that signal that spring is coming. And if, if you had the opportunity to hear my conversation earlier today with Christine Hoover, she's the author of Searching for Spring, How God Makes All Things Beautiful in Time. And if you are struggling as you read headlines and see what's going on in the world around you, or perhaps are um, struggling with events in your own personal life, uh, she offers an outline of how we can look to what uh, God has created and how he makes all things beautiful in time. You might find some encouragement in that. That was, by the way, in the first hour of the program. And you can always find our interviews um, at any point in the uh, in the program at our podcast. Just go to kpdq.com and look for the Georgine Rice Show page. And you have an opportunity to um, enjoy an interview that you may have missed or one that you may want to hear a second time. Taking a look at... Um, to, uh, the remainder of this week, tomorrow, we're going to talk with Colin Smith. He's the author of Heaven, So Near, So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot. He's the villain in the story of the historic events surrounding the passion of the Christ that resulted ultimately, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to take a look at Judas Iscariot and the role he played in all of this and what we can learn from his life 
in terms of what not to do. That'll be tomorrow on the program. We're going to continue our interviews with um, uh, with the local schools as well uh, throughout this week and into the next. We spoke with Angie Taylor, um, uh, who is the head of school at Valor Christian School International. And I would encourage you to check out our listener savings page because there you can find discounts to a number of schools. Uh, if you're looking for a private Christian education and you can go to listener savings, plural, listener singular, savings.com. And there you'll find listed a number of school tuitions that are still discounted. We've had uh, a pretty good list of schools in our community that are offering discounts to KPDQ listeners. And we are so grateful for the opportunity, not only to extend those savings to you, but also to give all of us an opportunity to learn more about some of the fine schools in our community. On Thursday, we're going to talk with Jonathan Bach. He is the co-author of The Way Back, How Christians Blew Our Credibility and How We Get It Back. Well, who are these Christians who blew our credibility and what does that mean and how do we restore it if, in fact, their assessment is correct? We're going to get into that with uh, Jonathan Bach, uh, who is a co-author of the book, when he joins us on the program on on Thursday and then on Friday, we're going to lighten things up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. And of course, if there is breaking news, we will uh, break in with those uh, stories as they develop. As you might recall, uh, we started the program talking about the 17-year-old gunman who shot two classmates at a high school in Maryland. He was shot dead by a, a school official who was armed at the scene. Uh, there are uh, grieving um, students and adults in that community. Uh, remember them in prayer. And also that officials in Texas would be able to uh, trace the source of the explosions. Another one today at a FedEx facility in Texas. Uh, trying to, to piece uh, the details together. This one quite different from the four that preceded. Um, there was one explosion and one um, package that was uh, unidentified that was suspect, and they're still in the, the process of trying to determine uh, what might be at the source of all of this. And this was at a different location. It wasn't in the community of Austin where these uh, bombings first began. So there's certainly lots uh, to pray about as those in positions of authority are trying to get to the bottom of these serious situations. Well, we are out of time. I do want to take a moment and thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and first day of spring. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.